From the World Economic Forum, I'm Beatrice DiCaro, and this is the Book Club Podcast. Today's author is Jessica Nordell, who joined us to talk about her book, The End of Bias, How We Change Our Minds. Her book, shortlisted for the Royal Society Science Book Prize in 2021, sets out to provide solutions and offer steps we can all take to create more inclusive workplaces and communities. Jessica, a science writer, speaker, and journalist for publications including the New York Times, spent 10 years researching what causes us to discriminate against other people, often without even realizing it, and the cognitive science and social psychology that can help change our ways of thinking. She considers the effectiveness of diversity training and introduces promising real-world examples of how bias is being eliminated in settings from nursery schools to hospital wards and right up to the boardroom. Gender bias can help explain why it will take more than a hundred years to close the gap between men and women, according to the World Economic Forum's latest gender gap report. But if gender bias is so deeply ingrained in our societies, to mark the launch of our 2022 Global Gender Gap Report, Jessica Nordell spoke to my colleague Kate Whiting, and Kate started by asking her about her own experience battling discrimination, which actually set her on a path to writing the book. The thing that really struck me at the beginning is that you say this was sort of a personal journey for you because as a journalist, you realized that you were not being treated as a woman the same as if you were a man journalist. And so I wondered if to start with, you could sort of explain the background to that and why you chose to write the book. My passion for this topic and my kind of obsessive (laughs) quest to try to understand how to solve it really came from my own experience. You know, that was the, I would say the, the catalyst for my interest in it. And what happened to me was when I was early in my career, starting out as a journalist, I was, you know, trying to break into different publications. I didn't have any connections. I didn't know anybody. I was just sort of pitching into the void, you know, sending out queries to different editors. And I wasn't hearing anything back, like nothing, you know, just sort of radio silence. And then I had this one particular essay that I was really, I had worked so hard on and I knew that it would be like perfect at this perfect time. And I thought, well, if, if I don't land this with some place soon, it's just going to not be relevant anymore. So I got kind of desperate and I thought, well, maybe I could try pitching it under a different name. Maybe that would help. So I created a new email address and pitched it as J.D. Nordell instead of Jessica Nordell. So kind of a gender neutral, slightly masculine leaning you know, name. The piece was accepted within a couple of hours. And it was actually from one of the outlets that I had not heard from before. You know, I was kind of shocked, actually. I was really shocked. I, I really wasn't expecting this trick to work. But I ended up for a while, actually using JD as a pseudonym when I would pitch stories to national publications. In many ways, it's what started my journalism career. And then from then on, presumably, you wrote stories around bias. So I wonder if you can explain kind of that journey and also really what, you know, if we set out our sort of what what we're talking about when we're talking about bias, because obviously there's conscious bias, there's unconscious or implicit bias. It'd be quite interesting to know what the distinctions are. From the beginning, I was really interested in what we might think of as unconscious or unintentional bias. I mean, I think that editor who wrote back to me, who was, you know, the editor of a very progressive publication, I'm certain didn't 
think of himself as someone who harbored stereotypes about women or had consciously decided to, that women couldn't possibly write for that publication, but yet was susceptible to these kind of subtle, kind of ambiguous ways of thinking. So my interest really started with gender bias, looking at how women are perceived, misperceived, and what the consequences are for women at work and in different parts of life, in healthcare and in other places. And then, you know, as I, as that journey progressed, it became quite clear to me that the, the underlying mechanism was really the same across different kinds of bias, whether we're talking about race and ethnicity or disability, ability, mental health status, religion, bias can apply to all of these social identities. And the mechanism is the same, which is basically that we, you know, we live in a culture, we absorb information from that culture about which categories are relevant, which categories are salient, and what those categories mean. And we absorb a lot of associations and stereotypes and kind of cultural knowledge about those categories. And then when we encounter a person who fits one of those categories, all of that information stored in memory comes flooding into our minds and begins to influence the way that we interact. And it can be as, you know, as sort of seemingly minor as like, do I respond to this email by this person or not, to even lethal consequences in healthcare, in criminal justice, and policing, and more. So it's, you know, it, it, it's sort of like these maybe fleeting mental glitches that have enormous consequences for people. I found it really interesting when you were talking about assumptions. And so it's these sort of really could be seen as innocuous things, but it's like AI assistants, for example, who are women. And so that makes you think that women are more servile, for example, or, you know, Disney princesses not even speaking as much as the male characters. And as you say, these sort of um, historic views of, let's say, how one race might interact with a medicine, for example, and that can really impact, you know, in years down the line. So this sort of weight of assumptions, I've heard it explained as toxic air that we're just all breathing all the time. And so any interaction that we have with anybody has that as a starting place. I find that really fascinating. There are so many different amazing stories that you tell within the, the book, some positive, we see some really you know sad and, and negative. But one of the ones I found really interesting was that idea of no-tell logging village, as it's called in British Columbia, where Am I right in thinking? So it was the introduction of television and they came in and they studied this village that had no television. So I wondered if you could just talk me through a little bit about, about that. Yeah, that was one of the most fascinating pieces of research that I came across as well, because over the course of working on this project, I was really constantly wondering, well, where did these things come from? Where do these ideas of male supremacy or you know, male superiority come from? It, is it possible to trace it back to some kind of source, you know, some sort of original you know, infection that has now, you know, polluted our bloodstream. Similarly, race, you know, can we can we trace it back to a particular moment in time when the idea of white supremacy was invented? Because obviously it was, you know, an invention. Someone invented it. With regard to no-tell, what happened was there was a, a tiny village in British Columbia that because of kind of a fluke of geography, because of where it was positioned in between some mountains, the television signal had been blocked to this village. So it was essentially like a village that had never experienced television the up until the 70s. And the inhabitants of the village could 
if they wanted to travel like 20 miles away to watch TV at someone else's house. So it wasn't like they were absolute, you know, 100% blocked, but they didn't have like television as part of their daily experience at all. What happened was in the early 70s, there was going to be a new transmitter introduced into this village and a, a sociologist found out about it and thought, oh my gosh, this is a chance to see what impact television has because it hadn't been studied before. Like there wasn't a sort of before and after. So she like rushed quickly before, you know, all of the equipment could be set up, rushed to the village, interviewed many, many inhabitants about their habits, their beliefs, their attitudes. She interviewed children about what jobs they thought boys and girls should, you know, be able to grow up to have. Two years after TV was introduced, she and her team came back to see what happened. The findings were pretty interesting. They found that elderly people had become more isolated. There were fewer sort of civic events in the town. Children had become more aggressive. And they also found that boys and girls gender stereotyping had increased. So compared to how the children were before television, they were more likely to say boys and girls are well suited to different kinds of jobs. You know, girls are more suited to becoming librarians. Boys are more suited to becoming doctors, things like that. And they also found that children thought that boys and girls had sort of more different temperaments, that girls were nice and sweet and boys were more you know, aggressive and um, forceful. So it was a pretty interesting way of seeing what kind of impact television has. And I believe if I'm remembering right, I think it was just one station, but it it was enough to, to really significantly change people and their attitudes. And that's one station alone. And now obviously we have multiple channels, multiple platforms, streaming, we have social media. So what kind of impact do you think that's having on people on a day-to-day basis and how much responsibility is there for media? Oh, it's absolutely huge. I mean, we, we saw with the Facebook files that the impact of Instagram on girls' ideas about their own bodies, their self-image, all of these things are affected by social media. And I think what's even more nefarious is that, you know, the social media that we're exposed to has been engineered to be addictive in a way that television, you know, didn't have that capacity. So not only are the images harmful, but we are compelled to to look at them and to constantly be refreshing. So it's extremely concerning. So you also conducted your own bias research, which I found fascinating as part of this book. Um, And you use computer modeling on a fictional company that you called Normcore. Um, So I wanted you to talk me through that and what you discovered about the cumulative effect of bias on women at work. I was curious to know how all of these small interactions added up because bias research tends to look at a particular moment in time and a particular situation. At the moment a resume is being evaluated, You can see, for instance, that people might prefer a man's resume to a woman's resume. But there isn't a lot of research about how all of these interactions happen, how they accumulate over time, because, of course, that's not the only experience of bias a person has. A person has many experiences of bias over a day, over a week, over a lifetime, over a career. So my question was really, how do all of these moments add up and what is the consequence? So I teamed up with a couple of computer scientists to build what's known as an agent-based model, which is a particular kind of computer simulation 
and we created a virtual workplace. It was a very simplified workplace. People just do a project, are evaluated, and then are assigned points based on whether the project was a success or a failure. And then every so often they get promoted if they're the people who have the, the highest number of points at their level. So it was like an eight level organization, eight levels of hierarchy. And what we did was we ran the simulation just without bias. And then we introduced into the simulation a handful of really common patterns that women experience at work. So for instance, there's a lot of research that shows that women's work is slightly devalued compared to men's. There's research that shows that women are more penalized for failures than men are, um, less rewarded for successes. There's evidence that women are more penalized for having personalities that are seen as not nurturing or not communal. So in our simulation, when women noticed unfairness, we had them we built into the simulation that they would complain slightly and then they would be docked a certain number of points for not being a team player, which is something that a lot of women will recognize as a very common criticism. And what we found was that if we just introduced a very small amount of this bias, we ended up with a very large disparity at the top level of the organization after a number of promotion cycles. Even with just 3% difference in the way women and men were evaluated, we ended up with an organization that was about 87% men at the top. What we found and what this demonstrates is that just these small momentary interactions that we might call microaggressions, we might kind of downplay as not being very important, actually have very serious consequences over the long term. And that's just women. And I guess if you start thinking about intersectionality, so within the mix, black women and their experience, you're adding in more layers of bias, presumably. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that, that's a really important point. I mean, the way that bias affects women is very different depending on what other identities those women inhabit. So for instance, Asian women tend to be more penalized for not acting in what's perceived as a feminine way. So they are stereotyped as being more feminine. And then if they violate that stereotype, they are they experience really severe backlash. Black women, for instance, experience the most amount of just discrimination at work of any group. In some ways, however, they have more access to being seen as agentic or having sort of autonomy than white women or Asian women but only if it's sort of administrative. If, if it's a kind of agency that is broader than a sort of administrative agency, then they experience backlash as well. So I sort of want to get to the solution side of this now, because obviously it's called the end of bias and there are so many solutions and it's quite hard to kind of just discuss them all in, in the space of one podcast. But I wondered if we could look at sort of bias at work firstly, or what did you find were the most effective methods of reducing bias at work. There are things like diversity training that can obviously have some downsides. Um, and the other thing, I suppose, in the mix is how do you reach everybody and measure that effectiveness? It's a, it's a great question. I mean, this was sort of, you know, one of my main motivating questions is like, well, how do you actually, how do, how do we solve this problem? This is ubiquitous. It's harmful. And Importantly, most people don't think that it really applies to them. I mean, there's research that shows that 90% of people think they're more objective than average. 
And I would say that I, I would have put myself into that category. Like going into this project, I thought, well, you know, I'm going to look at all of the solutions and I'm going to really dig into the science and then I'm going to communicate them, but it's not going to necessarily change me because this doesn't, I'm probably a little bit more objective than most people. I'm probably a little less biased than most people. And what I found was that was absolutely not the case. It's a tricky question. How do we get people on board with the fact that this needs to be changed when they might not be aware or able to accept the fact that they them, themselves are, you know, could be contributing to this. So there are a number of different things that we can look at. And I would put them into a couple of different categories. There are approaches that we might call kind of technical approaches, sort of technical interventions, um, things like, for instance, trying to become more standardized and objective with the criteria we use to make decisions. An example would be, instead of just interviewing a candidate and winging it with a bunch of questions and trying to assess whether that candidate is a culture fit, which often happens, going into an interview with a set of standardized questions that are used for everyone that are carefully designed to try to find out whether this person is able to perform the kind of tasks and uh, roles that, that you're looking for. That's one way of decreasing the likelihood of homophily, which it means literally love of the same. We're very likely to be drawn to people who remind us of ourselves. There's a whole family of kind of technical interventions. Those can be effective. But what I found is that those kinds of interventions are really only as powerful as the commitment of the leadership of the organization. Because any kind of technical intervention can be overridden, it can be undermined, funding for that initiative can be cut. I mean, there's so many ways to kind of cut, you know, cut that sort of um, work off at the knees. And I've, I've seen that happen a lot. So what seems to make a difference, though, is if people at the top of an organization believe that this is a problem that is fundamental to the working of the organization, that tackling bias, creating a fair system where everyone can thrive, where everyone feels like they are able to participate and have input and have impact and feel psychologically safe, if the leaders believe that that is fundamentally important to the future of the organization, then these other kinds of interventions have more teeth. They get the resources, they get the commitment, they get you know all the things they need in order to actually work and be functional. I guess one of the other examples that you use in the book is around representation using women in STEM. And this morning I was thinking about this because my daughter chose for me to read to her Rosie Revere Engineer, which is about this young girl who wants to become an engineer. And it's so crucial that you looked a lot at MIT, for example, and how they have managed the faculty and increasing the numbers of women. So why is it so important that women see other women and people of color see other people of color in these different roles? It's incredibly important to be able to see someone who is like you in a role. It is a way that you can imagine yourself into that role. The fascinating thing that happened at MIT, the story that you're referring to, is that a particular department at MIT had about 10 years ago made a really big effort to recruit more women faculty. They had very few women faculty. It was a department of, I think, 70 people and they had like one or two women faculty. 
So they, they made a huge effort. They tried a lot of different things. They ended up bringing in a cohort of six women and then over the years, increasing the number of women that were hired. And the goal was to create a more inclusive environment for women faculty and create an environment where they could really do their research and thrive. But what they didn't expect was the impact this would have on the students. What they found was that after a certain amount of time of having these women faculty start to be part of the mix, women students started being drawn to this department at much higher rates than they were before. They st you started seeing them in the hallways, you started seeing them interacting with the professors. And, and I believe the proportion of women in that department is greater than the proportion of women overall at MIT. So I think at MIT, it's like 45% women in undergrad, 55% men. In this department, it's 50 or over 50% women. So it's just a remarkable demonstration of the impact of being able to see yourself, you know, being able to see someone like you in that in that role. And I, I had a, a conversation with an African-American faculty member who is part of that department as well. And he, he had a very similar experience when he was an undergraduate studying engineering. He sort of didn't imagine that he could become an engineering professor. It just, he, he didn't have that image as a possibility. And he told me one day he walked past a professor of his office and he saw him sort of sitting in his desk with his sneakers on the desk and listening to music that the student was familiar with. And in that moment, he thought, oh, I, I could be that. This could be my future, too. So those images are incredibly important. One of the faculty members I talked to uh, was describing this phenomenon in math, which is that if you want to prove that something exists, there are a number of ways to prove that a mathematical object exists. But one of them is to just show an example of it. That's called an existence proof. And she said, you know, maybe maybe I'm sort of an existence proof. You know, maybe that's what these students need. They need an existence proof that this kind of life is possible. That's so powerful. The other thing that fascinated me towards the end of the book, you talk about going to Sweden to see this school um, called Egalia. I'm probably not pronouncing that right, but um, and it's is basically there to encourage anti-discrimination. So just wondered, you know, for parents who might be listening to this, if you could sort of talk about like early interventions of reducing bias, because when, you know, if we try and catch it when people are younger and I struggle, my, my son asked me, he, he saw the book on my bedside table last night and he said, what's bias? And I then tried to struggle, you know, teaching a, an eight-year-old what that meant in a nutshell, in a way that he might understand. So I wonder if you might be able to sort of discuss a bit about Agalia and the ideas around that. Agalia is a school in Stockholm, Sweden that I visited. There are actually a couple of schools that are connected and use the same philosophy. And the idea of these preschools is that they are trying to give children an environment that allows them to become themselves without the kinds of limitations that society puts on children. And what they see is that even kind of minute interactions with children saying to a girl something like, what a pretty dress you have on, how cute you are, or saying to a boy, you're so strong, or you're so you know capable, affects the way that children see themselves and influences the way that they see each other. And so what this school did many years ago is 
began to change the way they spoke to children and spoke about children. And what they did was actually decrease their reliance on gendered pronouns. Instead of saying, hello, boys and girls, you know, good morning, boys and girls, girls line up over here, boys line up over here. They would start to say, hello, friends, hello, folks. Um, and they would refer to children simply by their first name instead of describing a girl and then saying, oh, she's over there. They would just use her first name. And they would also use this Swedish gender neutral pronoun, hen. So if they were describing like someone coming to the school to interview for a job, they would use hen if it was if the person's gender was not known or not relevant. There's some research done about this school and the researchers discovered that compared to other preschools, the children in this school do less gender stereotyping. They're more likely to want to choose a friend from another gender group. I'm interested to know, since you wrote the book, whether you've seen any shifts at all, because obviously we've been through a pandemic. How has that impacted on the reduction in bias or has it actually made things worse? I think what I've seen during the pandemic is we're, we're in this moment of what people are calling the great resignation. People are leaving their jobs. Well, one of the reasons that people leave jobs is when they perceive an environment as unfair. If they, if they experience bias in the workplace, if they see it as unfair, it decreases how engaged they are at work. It makes them less committed. It increases their likelihood to want to leave. And I think that, you know, the pandemic sort of created this perfect storm for people to say, you know, this isn't working for me. I'm out of here. Like, why should I stick around in, a, you know, a workplace that doesn't value me, that isn't treating me well? So it's interesting. I mean, I think that if employers are smart, they will see that addressing these problems at work is really important to them as well. You know, it's really important to allowing people to feel committed and to actually want to stay in these environments. You sort of talk in your conclusion about how writing the book actually changed you and your own perception of bias. So, yeah, I mean, what, what happened? What was your sort of journey, if you like, of writing the book? I started writing this book thinking that I was writing a pure science book and I was going to look at the research and I was going to use all of my powers of scientific thinking and analysis to look at what worked and bring it to as many people as possible and, you know, put a dent in this problem. I did not expect it to affect me as deeply as it did. And maybe that, you know, that could have just been my naivete, my, you know, mis self-perception, which I think many of us have. I, I didn't see how deeply these biases affected me and how deeply I had internalized these biases particularly sexism, honestly. I mean, I'm a very vocal feminist. I have no problem speaking up. I you know, feel very confident as a woman. And yet I found that the more deeply I investigated the origin of the patriarchal ideas, the idea of male supremacy, which I talk about a lot in the book, um, when I looked at the origin of these ideas, I could see the ways that they had affected how I thought about myself, how I thought about other women, how I interacted with other women, the kinds of assumptions I made about other women. And that was a very, I almost want to say kind of spiritually devastating 
realization. However, like I was saying earlier, you know, seeing what's happening in your own mind is the first step of having agency. Because when I was able to see how these ideas had affected me, had really infected me, then I was able to really systematically question them and look at them and kind of hold them up to the light. You know, I also feel that my, the way I had internalized ideas about white supremacy and racial hierarchy was very shocking to me in, in a similar way to how I thought about sexism. I sort of thought, well, I, I don't have racist ideas. That, that doesn't affect me. And lo and behold, as I really thought about it, as I really investigated, I, I saw that I had been absolutely affected and infected by these ideas as well. So again, the process of really looking deeply, analyzing, questioning, and then ultimately choosing, you know, a different way changed my life. I mean, affected the way that I was able to relate to others, the way I was able to relate to myself, the way I was able to see the world. So I think writing this book in a lot of ways was a life, a life changing experience. And I, I hope that some of that comes across, you know, I hope that for readers, they can use the book as a as a step in their own journey, you know, wherever they are in their own kind of journey of of tackling these these issues. I think the analogy you use of in being infected is is fascinating because I would say that the book actually is your way of making a vaccine against this. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> that was author Jessica Nordell speaking to Kate Whiting. Please subscribe to the World Economic Forum Book Club podcast and leave us a rating and review. Don't forget to join our book club on Facebook, which is coming up on 200,000 followers. And to discuss podcasts, please join the World Economic Forum Podcast Club, also on Facebook. Please search out our sister podcasts, Radio Davos and Meet the Leader, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of the Book Club Podcast was presented by my colleague Kate Whiting and myself, Beatrice DiCaro. Production was with Gareth Nolan, and thanks to our podcast editor, Robin Pomeroy. We'll be back soon, but for now, thank you for listening and goodbye.